Good morning, everyone. While people are handing out Bibles, um, let's turn to page 1219. We are in 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this, the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves, they submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thanks, Michael. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is full of things that challenge us, that stretch us, that we need your help and the help of your Holy Spirit living in us to understand. And we ask humbly for that help today. In Jesus' name, amen. As Adele said earlier, there will be a chance after this talk to ask questions if you want to. Let me start by telling you about one of my heroes. She is a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. Well, she's also a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. She lives with the Lord now in heaven. She is a lady who, um, a woman who went with her husband to share the gospel and give practical and medical help to a tribe in a particular part of Latin America. And as they were doing that work, her husband was attacked and killed by some members of that tribe. And Elizabeth Elliot, after like evacuating a bit and recovering for a little while from that terrible tragedy that happened, she returned to the same tribe to share the good news about Jesus with them and to continue in the practical help and work that she started towards those people. She's a hero, and I think what makes her heroic is this. She carried the weight herself of bad things that other people had done. You know, things she didn't cause, she still took the weight of that on herself and continued to do good to people who didn't want good for her. That's heroic, I think. And the reason that that's heroic is because it's like Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, carrying the weight of wrong things people had done, people who didn't love him or even like him. Elizabeth Elliot understood something that Peter said that we've read in this book. Peter says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. What he, Peter has been saying to these Christians is, you are free, you know, only God has a right to judge you, and when you trust Jesus, you're free from God's judgment. So in that sense, you're free. No one else can force you to do anything. You're right with the only one who's got the right to judge you. But now you're free from that expectation. Use your freedom 
to be like Jesus. Don't say, oh, well, I'm free, you know, I'm right with God through Jesus, I'm just going to do what I like. No, don't use it as a cover-up for evil, this freedom. Now that you're free from what other people expect of you, be like Jesus in the world. Particularly, we're called to be like Jesus when he died on the cross. The cross was where Jesus died and he took the weight and the blame for what other people did so they could be free and know God. Now, if you're a Christian, you've accepted that is true about Jesus. If you're a Christian, you have accepted that Jesus died to take the weight for you, what you did wrong. And so Peter is saying, stop living for sinful desires. You're free from people who want you to live that way. Worship Jesus. Be like Jesus. And that means in a godless world, doing the Elizabeth Elliot thing where we point to Jesus. Our pattern of life will be carrying the weight of things that other people get wrong. If we want to be like Jesus in a world that doesn't know Jesus, that will mean taking the consequences of other people's bad actions so they can see what Jesus is like, the one who took the consequences of their bad actions. There is no way to show people Jesus in a culture that doesn't know him except to be like that, patiently bearing what other people get wrong. And so Peter has been saying in this letter, the call for every Christian is not to sort of remove yourself from situations where it's tricky to be a Christian and so avoid that awkwardness. He's been saying, stay where you are, do good and point other people to Jesus. One of the things we say we like to do here at Christchurch is engage with culture. Think about the world around us. Well, this is the way Christians engage with culture. We continue to do good for people who don't treat us well. The Jesus model, that is it. That is the way that Christians show Jesus. Now, last week, Peter used the most extreme example you can think of of that. People who are enslaved. The Bible has very harsh words to say against slave owners. The Bible is against people owning slaves. But the reality is that the gospel grows most amongst the margins of society, the poorest people. If you become a Christian, you're likely to end up in the margins of society as you stand up for what's right. And so Peter was addressed. These exploiting people who are being exploited by people, how are they supposed to be Christians? How are they supposed to live with Jesus as Lord? Peter actually says, I think, all of us who are not in that situation should be learning from those people how to bear the weight of other people's wrongdoing. Well, this week he's turned from the workplace to the home. We're going to see two things, he says in this passage, two groups of people. Here's the first one, wives who want to win their husbands. Okay, I'm going to try and tread carefully here. There are a whole lot of assumptions here, not spelt out, but are there throughout the New Testament as it describes what marriage is. That men and women are different to each other, that our physical differences mean something, and that when men and women get married, there are different rules in marriage. That's unpacked for Christian marriages, 
elsewhere in the Bible. I'm not really going to talk about that today. And people think different things about how that applies to Christians today. Here, Paul is talking to women who have become Christians or in his context have had arranged marriages they had to make with husbands who are not Christians. And it's clear, uh, by the way, in the Bible, if you get to choose who to marry, you should choose a Christian. But there's all sorts of ways that women ended up, in Peter's time, not in that situation. And he says to them, in the same way, chapter 3, verse 1, which I think is a reference to chapter 2, verse 18, in reverent fear of God, thinking God's reputation matters more than your experience, in the same way that slaves have to do that, in the same way, stay in your marriage and submit yourself to your husband. Basically, I think he's saying, because you become a Christian, because you now fear God, that doesn't mean you should leave your marriage. Even if your husband, who in that day had all the control, is not at all sympathetic to you. As an aside, aside from anything to do with marriage, I think it's clear Christians should not abandon their family relationships when they become Christians. Sometimes there are Christian leaders who have wrongly taught that. You need to leave your family. Real commitment to God would mean like joining our cult, basically. But no, Peter says your human relationships in which you become a Christian are where you live out your faith. And he assumes that the concern of these Christian women is to win over their husbands. So he says, now that you worship Jesus, don't use your freedom to cover up the sin of walking away from your marriage. Stay and hope to win your husband. Now he's assuming uh, that the husbands don't believe the word. That is, that these non-believing husbands have heard the word and rejected it. And he is, so he is saying, stay in your marriage, but also don't feel like you have to be constantly hassling your husband to become a Christian. Let them see instead the purity and reverence of the way that you live. Let me be clear, this is a lot to ask, especially in the ancient world, but actually at any time of a woman with an unbelieving husband. It's worth saying, in Peter's time, it would have been very surprising to see a woman addressed about spiritual matters at all. In his time, men led the family, and it was just assumed that the wife and children would operate with the same household gods that the husband chose, and he would choose based on what would help the family get on in society, and that was his job. Why is Peter addressing the wife about spiritual matters at all would have been their question. Peter, the New Testament, regards women as spirit-filled servants of God, as able as men to realise the true freedom there is in trusting Jesus, able to say, I'm not going to be judged by people's views of how I look, free from that. And I'm going to use that freedom to continue where I am with all the stresses and strains of trying to live out a life of purity and reverence to God in a household where, overall, God is not honoured. Now, I don't think verse 3 is a shopping guide. Elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewellery, no. 
silver's fine, not gold. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's doing is this. He's trying to release these women of trying to con- for, for the freedom of having to constantly persuade unbelieving husbands. He's also trying to release them from the idea that they need to prove Christian women are the most beautiful and the best to be married to in the world's eyes. The significant thing, he says, is your inner self, your gentle and quiet spirit. I remember once, a few years ago, studying 1 Peter with a group of interns, including some very strong and capable women who were definitely not scared to say what they thought. And I remember we read this bit of the passage, and one of them said, I'm trying to work out how the words gentle and quiet could ever apply to my personality. And one of the other women from a much blunter culture just laughed and said, yes, I can see you having a problem with that. (laughs) These words could seem like an attack on you if this is not what you're like. When I was at university, I remember there being a totally weird seminar one of our CU weekends away with women stressing about how do you be a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. None of those women were married to anyone. So this verse didn't have any application to them at all, but it was a severe stress for the women who liked playing football and acting on the stage. I don't think he's saying this gentle and quiet spirit is a particularly feminine thing. Now, what he's talking about is this. Have you ever met someone who has such a calm confidence in who they are and what they need that they're not thrown off by other people's opinions. They take criticism without flying off the handle. They respond gently in crisis situations because they're sure of themselves. If you've ever been around someone like that, you think, oh yeah, I'd like a bit of whatever they're on. Now Peter is saying that attitude is available to every Christian in 1 Peter 3. He says, listen, all of us, he's been saying, are God's special possession. We're set apart. We're deeply known and loved and we belong. You're safe and secure. You have a purpose of declaring his praises that you never need to be thrown off from. So even in highly stressful situations like these women are in, the beauty and attractiveness will be pointing people to Jesus of being gentle, of being quiet and calm. And it says, Peter, God sees that, that is of great worth to him. You know, being the calm one in a crisis situation doesn't often feel very sort of important. Quite the opposite. Everyone else is running around like a headless chicken and you're not really achieving anything. But Paul says no, Peter says no, that gentle and quiet spirit is of great worth to God. It's one of the many things I love about the gospel. In our even more obsessed with image culture than Peter was living in, I think Christian women can feel highly pressured to show they can look a particular way. I was reading an article not very long ago by a sort of, I want to say Christian woman celebrity. In the Christian world, she's a celebrity. She's not a celebrity. She's on like God TV and things like that. And she was doing an interview And someone said to her, is it true that you've had plastic surgery? And she said, yes, it is. 
but it's because I'm a Christian woman in the public eye, it's important that I don't look haggard and old, or that would reflect badly on the gospel. Now, she's just expressing, I think, maybe an underlying pressure that Christian women might feel. We have to look great or people will reflect badly in Jesus. Peter's saying that's totally irrelevant. You do not need to feel that pressure. What you need to build is what all of us are building, a gentle and quiet spirit, because you know you're loved by God. And people who are living in this situation, developing that in a family situation that's complicated... They can teach all of us what a gentle and quiet spirit looks like in life. Please be aware that if you know you're loved by God in this way, and wherever you are, you exude that quiet confidence and gentility, that does point people to Jesus. That is attractive. Lots of people here, I guess, the people closest to you are not Christians. I realise from talking to you, that can lead to tension. Christmas can be full of drama. There are particular relatives who can't wait to insult or undermine. You might feel pressure to try and be impressive in some way. The only way you need to be impressive is in the way we're all called to be impressive. Have confidence you're loved by God. And let gentleness and quiet flow from that. So Peter is saying to these women, running away to join a Christian community isn't what Jesus' lordship means. Don't give in to fear. Stay where you are. Give yourself to your husband. You don't need to hassle the people closest to you to become Christians. Whom is the hardest place, I think, to do evangelism, whatever that is. You don't have anything to prove to anyone else. In that sense, you're free. You worship Jesus. You're loved by him. Every situation is a chance to point to him by quietly, gently living it out. Now he uses this example of Sarah and other holy women of the past. And we love this, verse 6, don't we? Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Uh, this is not a marriage guidance seminar. Um, anyway... As I look this up, Sarah, who was married to Abraham, did once in the Bible, Genesis 18, call him her Lord. At the time, she's laughing. So I don't know what that, make of that what you will. She's actually laughing about something that God has said and said, are my Lord really going to have a child at our age? The other holy women in the Bible were known for staying in marriages that must have been very difficult and unfulfilling. But their obedience did not involve quietly doing what their husband said all the time, as far as I can read. Hannah uh, basically taught her husband to trust the Lord. Ruth made the first move romantically on her husband Boaz in a way I think you wouldn't recommend today. That's a whole other story you can look up later if you want to. So what's being recommended here in submitting yourself to your husband is not heart, you know, thoughtless obedience, do what he says. What's being recommended here is committing yourself to the situation, gently, quietly, pointing to Jesus. Don't give in to fear, but trust the attractiveness of your quiet, confident security in being known by God. He's saying to these women what he's saying to all of us. 
grasp the opportunity you have to point to Jesus. Don't try and get out of it. There's no, and no matter how hidden or insignificant seeming that seems, that is of great worth to God. Recently, um, as part of a, a conference, someone I know is doing a survey of Christian women who are married to men who aren't Christians, whatever way that's come about. And one of the questions in the survey was, quoting this passage and saying, how do you put this into practice in your marriage? Interesting results. One of the women in the survey said, basically the way I've put this into practice is this. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd have left my husband by now. He's really a difficult man. But I'm staying and loving, submitting myself to him in that sense, because I want to take every opportunity I have to point him to Jesus. Women who want to win their husbands. This one's not as long. Husbands who respect their wives. Husbands who respect their wives. Did you notice, husbands in the same way have to act a certain way. What's the same way? Again, with reverence to God. And they're told to be considerate as they live with their wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. I guess one of the things about the first bit of the passage is that it makes us very nervous that that could easily be used as a license for abuse. Tell wives to submit to their husbands. I think, to be honest, in church times past, it has been used in that way. Now, I can't, that's just a whole issue. The ethic I want to, that Peter is basically putting out here is that when evil is done to you, you repay it with good. That's what he's going to say in the next passage. I just want to be clear, if you're in any sort of abusive or coercive relationship, you are not doing good by keeping quiet about it. No, that is not what Peter is commending. Let this person go on behaving in a bad way because the Bible says you submit to your husband. That is not repaying evil with good. Doing good is speaking up. And if you need help, there are women men, people in our church who want to help you. So that's the nervousness about the first bit of the passage. But it's clear when he comes to husbands, who in this culture are the ones with power, Peter's not up for that at all. The first bit of the passage is the most controversial bit to us. The second bit would have been much more controversial to the original readers. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Husbands in that culture had no reason to be considerate of their wives. They could do what they liked. Most were serially unfaithful because that was viewed as a way to be manly in the culture. And are we to worry about Peter calling wives the weaker partner? I don't think so. I don't think that is a, a value statement. He's merely saying that both so usually physically and definitely socially, husbands are in a more powerful position than wives. <laughs> But the call of Christian husbands, like Jesus, is to use whatever power you get by being a man to respect your wife as an equal. Highly controversial to Peter's first audience. Um, he basically says, your wives, women, are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. 
Again, they were used to a world where the man made the spiritual decisions and the women followed, and some patriarchal religions are still like that today. You know, whatever the man decides, everyone else has got to do. We're all part of the religion because he's the head of the family and we all have to be. Peter's not up for that at all. Says, your wife is a co-heir with you of God's grace. Equal in the way that they are supposed to operate as a Christian. And I love the way he just drops in, verse 7. If you do that, nothing will hinder your prayers. I mean, sounds like an aside. But he's saying to Christian husbands, if you don't treat your wives considerately, if you don't take whatever power you get as a man and use it to respect your wife, if you don't treat her as an equal Christian to you, God won't listen to your prayers. He's elevating this, Peter, to the highest possible level of importance that men behave this way. So, there are wives who want to win their husbands in this passage, and there are husbands who want to respect their wives or need to be told to respect their wives. But what about everyone else? A large number of people in our church are not married, whether that's because you're not at the stage in life yet, or you don't want to get married. Or you would like to get married and it's just never happened for you. And a lot of people are married, but the person you're married to is a Christian. So what has all of this got to do with us? Well, let me say two things. The first one is this. If you are male, you have a lot of privilege in society. It's where feminism has been really helpful to show us the truth. It said basically... Uh, that men use their power to dominate women is not good or normal. By just being male, you get a lot of privilege. Here's a question. In the church, do women feel like they are co-heirs before God? As a man particularly, am I using my power, whatever it is, to make that clear in my relationships. I mean, it's interesting, the marriage that's described in chapter three. What does that marriage feel like to be in? I was sort of, not brought up, but in my 20s, um, on a diet, uh, a spiritual diet, where I was told a Christian marriage feels like the man is leading all the time and the woman is submitting to that lead. The marriage described in chapter three, well, says that the women, I think, should feel respected, should feel like a co-heir. Maybe, if you are married, particularly if you're a man, it would be worth going home and asking that question. Is that how it feels to be in your marriage? And if it isn't, well, I'm sure you can learn from your your wife's gentle and quiet spirit in how you take that criticism. So I think there is a general application there. We particularly need to think, as men, about how privilege is used with all the women around us, particularly those closest to us. But here's the wider application that has nothing really to do with marriage. All of this is about looking like Jesus. Both the men, uh, especially the women, but definitely the men here, are being reminded in the passage just before of what Jesus did. He himself 
bore our sins in his body on the cross. And these women who are living in this most stressful of situations, trying to worship Jesus, where the person with all the power doesn't want to worship Jesus, and trying to work that out, they're given here as an example for what all of us are going to need to do. The way we engage with the world is by taking the weight of other things people get wrong gently, quietly, respectfully. That is what it is to be like Jesus. And if you're struggling to do that, which if you're human, you probably are, the thing that gets you there is having this grand picture of Jesus who bore, his, bore our sins in his body on the cross for us. You know, earlier on this week, um, after last week's sermon, when we were talking about this, and with this I'll finish, uh, someone came to me and said, um, I think this whole thing that you're teaching, where we have to do this for other people to engage with culture, it's fine for really mature Christians, but for young Christians like me, it's too hard. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. Peter won't have any of that. He's talking to fresh Christians in impossible situations. And he says it's nothing to do with how mature you are. It's got to do with who you think Jesus is. What you think about him. Do you truly believe at the heart of what you worship that he himself took our sins on his body in the cross? Is that who you admire? Is that who you love? Is he at the centre of everything you think is right and good and true? If he is, then that's the life that you live. So wives, submit to their husbands. Husbands, respect their wives. Not because here particularly, that's a model of marriage, but because both groups long to point to Jesus who carried the weight of other people's wrongdoing. Let's pray. Just, just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Lord, how we pray you would form those cross-shaped lives in us. In Jesus' name, amen.